at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Just to note that the audio quality for today's episode is a little bit lower than usual. It's the very first episode that we've managed to record back in the office at the Alan Turing Institute and we're still working on our new setup in the uh, brand new media suite that we have. So bear with us, um, future audio quality will hopefully be even better than what you're used to. A lot of the uh, Episodes, as you might imagine, that we've released over the last two years have been recorded at home uh, over Zoom with our podcast guests. And so we're looking forward to having the opportunity to get people back in the office um, in our new studio and record them properly. Uh, this episode, we did we did do that, but um, not with the uh, best possible audio equipment so bear with us and enjoy hello everyone welcome to the turing podcast um i'm your co-host ed cowstry um and today i'm joined by a new co-host christina last christina hi welcome to the podcast hi um so christina you're new to the alan turing institute um what are you what's your role here and how did you come to be at the the institute um yeah so i'm new i joined this summer at the turing institute I'm a member of the research engineering group alongside uh, Ed, and yeah, my background is quite hybrid. I kind of came to AI sideways from a geography degree, Um, but I'm really interested in the use of AI, and we'll get onto that later, but within within the idea of looking at how do we understand urban inequality and use these kind of processes to understand... um, you know, geospatial concentration and, and looking at kind of open source geospatial data around that as well. Um, nice. So yeah, I'm really excited to be on the podcast team and have yep. super interesting conversations. Yeah, so Christina's part of the same uh, group at the Alan Turing Institute as I am, the research engineering group, as she mentioned, um, and I've roped her into doing the podcast as well, so, so thanks for that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, you volunteered, I think. <laughs> yeah, I remember, well, I remember kind of hearing about it during... My yeah. application process and listening to a few yeah. <laughs> good interview prep. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, well, um, so today we're joined uh, by another member of the research engineering group at the Alan Turing Institute. We're joined by Dr. James Geddes, who is a principal research data scientist. Um, and we're going to be discussing um, the problems with artificial intelligence. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, so James, before we get into talking about AI and its problems, um, can you tell us a bit about your background in science and what led you to be in your current role at the Alan Turing Institute? Sure. Um, you've probably heard this phrase before, um, 
I don't know, it probably originated from James Hetherington, but again, I have less of a career and more of a Kareen. Um, so <laughs> Define Kareen. <laughs> well, I sort of bounce around. So I'll tell you what I've done. So I've, um, I have a PhD um, in theoretical physics, so I've got quite a mathsy background. Um, but then I did a stint as a management consultant, um, which is quite different. And then I uh, did, so I ran my own company doing sort of analytical consultancies to small to medium-sized businesses. And then I uh, worked in government, in the civil service for a while, um, which indirectly is how I've ended up at the Turing. Um, I can tell you more about that if you'd like, but I worked on in the then Department of Energy and Climate Change mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> on climate change matters. And then I uh, did a stint at a management consultancy, but in analytics, in sort of a data science capacity, and then I came here. Okay, so you've, you've really gone from doing the physics PhD, you've gone through the world of business yes. and the world of government, and now... Yes. Back at, I've done all. <laughs> back at the exactly. Research Institute. So which is the best place to work? This Bit, is the Business best place or government? Work. Okay. <laughs> but this, so what's Institute. nice about this is that it's, it's, a, it's um, so, so, so there are trade-offs in business and government, I think. Like, and maybe just to be slightly simplistic, business, um, you feel like you're having an immediate impact in business, I think. Yeah. You have to make decisions and they have an effect. But, you know, in the end, it's about making money. And maybe, you, maybe you're lucky and you work for a company whose sort of mission you really care about. Um, but, but for most companies, it's about money. In, in the civil service, I think a lot of... I was quite surprised when I joined to find... I mean, there's this sort of yes minister archetype of the civil service as being uh sort of you know almost pure functionaries who are just concerned with the status quo and I, I found that to be not true at all i found like a large group of extremely um you know people who really cared about right making the country work better okay. uh, and doing things well um so you do feel there's this sort of greater mission you know that you are in fact a public servant and that is that is a good feeling but but the, the pace of being able to change things is so slow and difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just is hard to turn the ship of state. And, and of course, you're, you're, you're working at the, the, you know, at the pleasure of the, the minister. So you know, the decisions yeah, yeah. on exactly what to do are not yours. Your job is to um, advise and to implement. Um, so you're saying government is slow business is fast maybe a science somewhere well, it can in between it can certainly feel that way i think i don't know about science but here i felt that i think we all feel like we're trying to improve the world yeah um genuinely um but we get you know we get to sort of uh make decisions that affect how you know, what we work on and how we do the work we do and yeah, so I think it, I think there's a there's a there's a bit of best of both worlds. I think mm. to be working at, which is why I like it. And how did you come from the government role to the Turing? You mentioned that. Oh yes, right. So um, so when I worked in government, uh, I worked. There was a project called the Twenty Fifty Project. Yeah. Um, 
uh, whose goal, well, the idea was at the time, you know, the UK had committed to these um, these targets for uh, CO2 reduction by 2050. And, and the question then is, okay, well then how do we do that? Um, and I think traditionally what, what the government would have done is it would have commissioned some kind of analysis by an external consultancy. And the question would have been, you know, could you build a large model and optimize and what is the correct pathway to, to sort of zero or, or in, as it happened, 80% um, carbon reduction. But at the time that I joined, a, uh, um, a, a professor of physics, uh, David Mackay, had uh, just joined DEC as chief science advisor. And he'd, he'd uh, joined partly on the back of a book that he'd written called um, uh, uh, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which is available online for free, by the way. Um, and in it, he basically asked the question, could the UK live on purely renewable energy sources, mm. oh, sorry, sustainable energy sources? Um, and the book was a series of chapters, and each chapter did a sort of physics-like back-of-the-envelope calculation, mm -hmm. either about what amount of sustainable energy could we produce, or how much do we actually need for transport and heating and so on. And then it, the book sort of added them all up. It was a lovely, it's a lovely book, it really yeah. is. And so what we decided to do was to try and turn the book into a model to sort of make the book come to life and allow the user of the model to play with the, the, um, the, the scale of change that, that they thought was possible in each of the sectors. It's, it's very different. So the normal approach in government is what's the cost minimization approach? Yeah. But the thing here is that, well, that's not the question. The question is, what are we going to do? And we have choices. And the uncertainties over those costs, of the costs of the choices we make, are very large, actually. And so the cost minimizing approach, you know, it's, it's very picky. And anyway, there's so much uncertainty. So the real question is, what's the impact of certain kinds of change you know, what, what would be the impact if we didn't build wind farms, if we built lots of wind farms, if we built wind farms on, you know, twice the rate we've been doing and sustained mm. that all the way through 2050? I mean, just what's the range of possible alternatives? So we built this model, which we called the calculator, because it sort of just added things up. Um, and I think that was a super successful idea. During that period, uh, David and I had concocted a... Um, so his, we had two, we had two views on why analysis in in the real world is uh, sort of difficult. And my view was that, um, you know, what civil servants have available is Excel, and Excel is an amazing tool. Mm -hmm. But it has, it has. There are a number of well-known problems with trying to build large-scale models in Excel. All the things that we talk about in the research engineering group, you know reproducibility, version control, yeah. uh, modularity, abstraction. And just for the listeners' benefit, you're literally talking about Microsoft Excel spreadsheets, and that's like the commonly used tool for right. scientists in government, I guess. Or for civil servants. For civil servants, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, there are, you know, some groups, you know, have other tools available, but they tend to be quite um, specific groups. And in, and in my sense, is a lot of the analytics is sort of outsourced anyway. So if you're a general civil servant like I was, you get Microsoft Office. Yeah. 
you know, which is no bad thing, but, you know, spreadsheets don't do everything and you tend to use that tool because that's what you have and then you get you build more and more and more and then suddenly you've got this enormous great Excel model that uh, is quite hard to manage. Um, but, I mean, well, there are benefits, right? So we, we a number of other countries adopted the, the model that we built, the 2050 calculator, and adapted it to their own country, um, um, uh, which was fantastic. That, that was based in Excel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so every time we would start, and you know, we, we got to go to China and help, uh, you know, quasi-governmental agency in China build the version 2050 calculator. And every time we did this, I sort of said to the team, "Look, it's such a pain to try to update this model." Yeah, right. You know, can't we just write it in some sensible programming language? And the team said. I think quite rightly, yes, it is a pain, but the only reason we've got so much traction, the reason that other countries have sort of looked at what we've done and said, oh, we should do that, is because it's in this Excel, which everyone knows. Everyone's yeah. familiar with, with the traditional spreadsheet. Exactly. I've heard horror stories about like the results of scientific papers turning out to be very different because when someone's pulled, like drags down yeah. the, uh, the, the, the selection on a spreadsheet... Um, to give a slightly different formula, it's resulted in different results for some like, and that's like stuff that's been really, you know, impactful to policy in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, the canonical example I think is the Reinhard Rogoff paper on that's probably um, what I'm thinking of. Yeah, so it's, it's an a, economics. It's an economics paper, yeah. on, um, and you know, I'm not an economist, so it's not clear to me that the error affected the conclusion, and it's not clear exactly to me how much policy was really determined by the paper, but it sure looks like policy was determined by the paper. A lot of people cited this um, as to why we should have austerity. Um, uh -huh, right. But, you know, there's other examples. There's the loss of the... Um, uh, a lot of the um, COVID tests recently... Um, uh, the count was lost because someone passed data using Excel and it chopped off. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember that news yeah. story last exactly. year. <laughs> okay, so I mean, there are reasons to use Excel, and there are also reasons not to use it. So I have some ideas for how we could fix this problem, and and at the same time, and um, David, his big thing was that the that the it's hard for people to work with models that include uncertainty, and the world is just uncertain, right? I mean, we just you effectively there are things we want to know about the world but we can't know them directly so we make observations of things that we can observe and and that implies you know that that gives us some knowledge of the thing we really want to know but not perfect there's, there's there remains some uncertainty if you if you enact a government policy and you want to predict what's going to happen when you've made this policy, well, there's a lot of parameters you have to assume about how people behave and the costs of things, but you don't know them. So one, so one problem is how do you make, how do you build models that allow you to predict, for example, the impact of policy interventions, but show how uncertain you are? And then, importantly, you know, you spend a year and you observe what's happened and it's not exactly what you predicted, or you know, it's within the bounds of uncertainty, but then how do you take the observation about what has happened, feed it back through the model, and get better estimates of the things that you need to know that you don't know? So both of these things are quite hard to do in Excel, and therefore hard for the civil service to do. 
and especially the second one, especially the updating your knowledge mm. based on observations. So, um, uh, you know, uh, David was a uh, David is the reason I'm a Bayesian, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, everyone should should read his book on uh, on. Uh, can you can you explain what you mean by that? Um, yes. <laughs> Let me finish this story, go and on, then, I'll, <laughs> then you can ask me about Bayes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, so we. Uh, we had an idea that we could sort of work on these two problems. So, um, uh, and the Turing seemed like an excellent place to go work. And so David was appointed as a fellow and I was appointed as the first member of the research engineering group. Um, and then as you probably know, he tragically died before he could take up his um, position here. So uh, yeah, so that was a bit crap, but anyway, that's why, that's why I'm here. But uh, when you joined the research engineering group, you did get the chance to look at this very problem. So can you tell us a bit quickly about the uh, the project? Before we talk about AI, give yeah, okay. it, so, on, tell us a bit about the so Excel the, project. The project is, is called is called No Cell. Um, and you know, you can't don't don't go and try and download it because uh, but um, we've we've had right, so so I've had some time to work on it. Um, and it's now a bit more concrete than uh, than it was when when we first came here. Um, effectively, so a lot of people have made this observation that if only you could combine the best bits of Excel and programming languages, maybe mm -hmm. that would be great. In in my view, so what and typically what they tried is to start with Excel and add programmatic capabilities to it. Yeah, right. Um, um, and what I would like to do is go the other way. So I would like to write a, a little programming language, ideally of the sort that it's convenient to build models of the kind that governments like to build, which produces as output an Excel model that does the same thing. So the idea is you write a program, but the, the compilation target, if you like, is Excel. Would you be able to import it into Excel? That is the first question that everyone asks. <laughs> I mean, if you change the model, does it go back into the program? Uh, well, it depends how you think people would use it. But I would say that usually when you develop a model, you want it to be interpretable by another team who may not know about the programming language. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that you'd, you'd, you'd write your model in this language, and then you say compile and you get an Excel spreadsheet and that's the model. So then you could give that to someone else. Yeah. Um, um, and all they need to understand is how spreadsheets work. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, I mean, if, actually, I would like this. I, you know, I've built a lot of spreadsheets in my time. And I still use spreadsheets even here for sort of a lot of operational stuff because they're just really convenient. But... I really would like to be able to generate a spreadsheet from programmatic source. Like I'd like to be able to write a little program and have it because it would solve a lot of the, well, it would solve a lot of the problems that programming languages try to solve, abstraction, modularity, version control, reproducibility. So, um, mm. yeah, so I think we've, we've got a bunch of ideas and uh, a, bu progress. a bunch of code that does some stuff, but it's, it's not finished. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic idea anyway, because what you then you're doing is hopefully marrying the world of right. data, data science and possibly AI um, with the world of um, 
yeah, civil servants using spreadsheets to which end up determining government policy and exactly. the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. And it does seem like those are two worlds that are probably worth worth marrying. Yeah. Um uh, but James, um, so we got you on the podcast to talk about AI. Right. Um, so let me ask you first, um, are you... You then... misquoted the title of my talk. <laughs> um, what was the title of your talk? The Problems uh, of AI. The Problems of AI. What did I say? The problems with AI. The problems with AI. I do apologise. Right. The problem is the title of my talk is a pun. Uh, okay. So... Is it? I don't get it. Yeah, so... so... <laughs> So what I what I so this was a lunch and learn I gave. The, yeah, you, this yes, is the, his uh, talk that James gave a talk internally at the institute yeah. to which I attended. So the so <laughs> and the, the subsequently is, misquoted. The pun, yeah, it's okay. The the uh, I think the the announcement went out as the problems with AI. Yeah, so I, I wasn't really talking. I didn't really want to sort of say AI has problems and these this is why it doesn't work. Right. What I wanted to say was. So, so what I mean. So the question is, what is AI? Okay. So, um, and what I felt before is that there are lots of explanations of AI. Mm. Some of them are very high level. You know, they're sort of look. It does this really cool thing. Isn't that amazing? And then some of them are overly technical. You know, and, and you're sort of lost after the first slide. Yeah. And and. I'm trying. I was trying to find a way to say, to you know, to give a, an explanation that was that was right, but not technical, and could help you to answer the question. For example, suppose you have a problem and you think AI can help. Mm. Well, there are some problems that AI, as we know it today, can help with, and there are some problems where we don't know how to solve that problem today. So the question is, how do you, how could you tell? So what I was trying to describe was, what are the characteristics of the kinds of problems that we can actually solve today with the kinds of AI that we know how to make? Mm -hmm. Because there aren't, because there's only a few, and and it's certainly not all of them. So if you understand what kinds of problems can we solve, then you understand what kinds of AI we actually have. So that was the, uh, that was the idea. That makes a lot more sense. Yes, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so the problems of yeah, AI. exactly. Um, before we before we go delving into that, James, can I ask you: Are you an AI researcher? Um, no, I mean, again, what am I? I don't know. I guess I'm a data scientist, so I think that makes me AI adjacent. <laughs> so, you know, I've yeah. I've I've got my name is on papers, which. I guess are in the field of AI, um, but it's not my day-to-day job advancing the field of AI. Hmm. Um, yeah, but we're certainly working in an area where we we see a lot of things which are called AI, right? And and then at some point you've got to describe well, what do you mean by artificial intelligence? Is this quite a generic term like? For instance, computing, right. which could refer to a lot of different kinds of things. Right. Um, but you did at least have an attempt at categorizing the different kinds of things that we might be referring to when people, be they, you know, ordinary members of the public or the media or scientists, um, what do they mean when they say AI? 
Um, you gave us a few different categories. Um, I'll just list them and then maybe we can chat about what each of them mean. Mm. So one of them was simulation. Another one was good old-fashioned AI, otherwise known as symbolic AI. Um, and then the most, um, perhaps to some of our listeners at least, especially if they are themselves scientists or practitioners, the most commonly, uh, the one they will have heard of the most is machine learning. Right. Um, so could you talk us through these categories and what your, was your thinking process between splitting these uh, types of AI into these categories? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, just stepping back a second. Right? So the, the definition I gave of AI, which was a bit trite, was it's anything done by a computer that looks intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, very, it's very, I think it's quite good because, uh, you know, it's sort of an operational definition, but it's also a bit subjective. Like, okay, is that intelligent? And in fact, you know, I think what we think of as constituting intelligence has changed. Basically, as soon as AI can do it, we don't think it's intelligent anymore. There's also, and we shouldn't go down this rabbit hole right now, but there's also the question of, like, what is intelligence? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. So I think we don't have a good answer to that question. Right, so then, you know, so so then I'm going to use this very, um, you know, this easing out, which is to say, well, if, you know, if it quacks like it's intelligent, then it is intelligent, right? So Yeah, right. um, Which I think is sort of fair enough for most people, right? But, But the point is that we don't have what is now being called artificial general intelligence like we don't have all of the fictional robots you see in the movies in fact someone so in in my talk i talked you know there was c3po and wally and terminator the the terminator's (laughs) probably there the the robot from ex machina yeah um i didn't have aurac from blake seven which our colleague called me on the other day but anyway (laughs) none of those things exist i don't know what that is so uh um, yeah, I mean, it is amusing. I think I think this. So I've I've lived through now three AI ages. There's been three sort of booms in AI. This being right. the third. The right. first one being about the time I was born, and the second one sort of around the eighties. I will ask you when that was. Uh, so I was well, I was born in seventy one. <laughs> so there was, so AI sort of started, say maybe in the late sixties. So there's been a boom and a bust and a boom and a bust, and well, here we are in the third boom. Just thinking about, like, as a term, like, when was it coined? Would people like Turing have said AI, or was it would have been later than that? I don't know. Well, he did, he did talk about, you know, famously the question of can a machine think, and so he proposed the, mm. the imitation game. But um, I, I don't know, but I rather suspect the term was coined uh, in... In, in the sort of late 60s, um, there's a, there was a famous, uh, I'm going to get the details wrong, but the people of that era, was it McCarthy? I don't know. Anyway, there, there was like a, a summer session, um, probably at MIT or something similar, and with, with, the, with, the, with the people whose names then became recognisable as AI researchers, and I think they coined the term artificial intelligence. Although, you know, they also thought they'd have vision done by the summer. You know, this was in... 68 or something, which clearly turned out to be... Well, is the, is the difference between those conceptions of AI about the problems that they're addressing, or is it about the, the kind of technology or the types of those 
ARs yeah. that they were... Yeah, both of those things. I don't think... At, at, this is, again, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think at the time we thought of it as changing the kind of problem. But when I, as I look back and see it, I think it does change the kind of problems that we worked on. Um, so, okay, well, so here's an example. So, um, um, you know, one thing that often appears intelligent is an ability to make a prediction. So, you know, here we are today, I'd just like to know what things will be like tomorrow. And I think, it's, you know, it's reasonable that if you can tell me something about tomorrow and that turns out to be true, that's I mean, there's something clever there, right? That, so, so, okay, well, one way of figuring out what's going to happen tomorrow is to simulate the world. So if you happen to know everything about the world, or at least the bit that matters, and exactly the laws governing the evolution of the world, well, then you can run those laws on a computer and you can make a prediction about tomorrow. So, you know, the weather forecast is precisely this. So you take measurements of all... Um, the atmospheric conditions around the world, you put them in a large computer, we know the equations of fluid dynamics and heat transport and so on that, that govern uh, atmosphere. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here, right? So you can't simulate down to centimetre level and you can't take measurements everywhere. But, you know, you check it in the computer and you crank through deterministic physical laws and you make a prediction. And that, you know, says, OK, it's going to rain tomorrow, I should take an umbrella. That's it's quite clever. And so, yeah, I think that's a kind of AI. And it's the and I think actually, you know, and it, when people talk about AI, that the, the term is so broad in common use that I think it, it covers it covers this just just fine. Mm. You know, if the computer was making predictions of something, you'd be like, well, that's quite clever. That's probably AI. Mm. So yeah, I think I think simulation. Is a kind of AI, although you know, it's not the kind we normally think of. But at the Turing, there are uh, a lot of projects that involve sort of physical simulations of real objects. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's the Bridge Project, famously, and there's the London Air Quality Project, and so mm -hmm. on. Now, we, of course, we have Turing podcast episodes on both of those, yeah, so exactly. you can take a little look back through the back catalogue. <laughs> yeah, they're not just simulation. I mean, just to give them their due, you know, these, these projects are quite clever because they do, in fact, try to understand uh, uncertainty, mm. um, which, is, which is, you know, a deeply comp difficult subject. But so they're more than just pure simulations. But they are simulations. And now it goes by, you know, we... There's this idea of a digital twin, um, which is this thing people talk about, where the idea is you you build a simulation of some part of the world in the computer, and then you you feed it measurements from the real world, and it updates itself to kind of stay in in sync. And then if you want to say what's going to happen, you can run it a bit faster than the real world and see what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think simulation is definitely a kind of AI broadly construed. Mm. So that's simulation, yeah. and I guess another way of thinking about that is it's some kind of program or computer model that is making a prediction about the future, yeah. given the input data that you have. But I suppose in this example, because you're talking about a separate category to one of the others you mentioned, which is machine learning, mm. um, we're, we're talking about a system which 
as you said, like you're programming in physical laws, for example, if it's a model of the weather or, or a bridge or some other kind of um, physical system that is a representation of a, it's a simulation of a physical system. Um, and so, of course, the way you're going to try and program that is that you're going to have deterministic rules, as you said, which are based on the physics as we understand them in the real world. And then that should just work. Although I guess my, and this is just a matter of opinion, but that kind of thing to me, if anything, seems like it's definitely not AI. It's definitely not in, but just because it's not, um, it's, 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 uh, it's like an equation, but more more complicated. But I bet you can't think of the definition of AI (laughs) that includes the things you want to include, but excludes this without being (laughs) added. That's probably fair. yeah. 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 Um, but but I think you've hit on a good point, right? So you look at it and you say, well, it's not, it's not, it's, it's clever. But the cleverness is sort of in, it's in the 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 actual discovering of the physical laws. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's you know if it's gravity or something, we took Isaac Newton, you know, mm-hmm. who's bona fide genius, right? So so and he uh, needed you know a whole slew of historical geniuses who made measurements and so forth before. So that's clever. But it, but the but that's done already by the time you come to do the computer thing. And then, of course, you know, you have to write the software that solves the equation. Mm-hmm. And numerical software is notoriously, you know, it's tricky, right? You've got, to, um, uh, you've got to make approximations. You've got to be sure those approximations don't invalidate your calculations. Uh, you've got to do them quickly. It's no good doing the calculations slowly so that by the time they're done, the thing has already happened. You know, it's quite clever to, to design a program that can do those calculations. But somehow that also, oh, and you have to know the initial conditions. You have to have measured where everything is right now. I mean, you have to know quite a lot about the problem yeah. before the computer even gets a look at it. Well, that's why I feel like it's like the intelligence is taking part in inside the human, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas the computer is just running the instructions. Just, But, of course, uh, the computers are always just running the instructions, no matter what well, kind of AI we're talking about. Is that true in machine learning? Yes. Okay, I'm going to upset a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to upset so many people. I mean, I think we can talk about machine learning, uh, unless you want to go via... Well, I think I I struggle with this point about being deterministic and almost, you know, predefined set of rules and the engineering being the smart bit. Like, for me, it's always been the AI has had... And the machine... Like, obviously, my concept of AI is much more refined around the machine learning point. Right. Um, And that's because it's kind of creating these relationships that, that we aren't explicitly defining, which is how I see that in contrast with something deterministic mm. like a simulation. And so I, I think... Um, if you could explain that, yeah, that would be useful. Sure. I, I think the way in which, which he hopefully can explain that, and I think is the, <laughs> the example that he gave in his talk, um, which we, you talked about the simulation category, but the other category that isn't machine learning was symbolic AI. Yeah, I'm curious um, about that. Yeah, and what what should help us to differentiate that from machine learning is that in some cases they've been applied to the same sorts of problem. So, for example, the problem of um, designing a computer program that can beat a human being at chess was something that was solved before machine learning was right. even thought of being used to apply right. to that problem by symbolic AI. 
So yeah, maybe you could talk a bit about that and like sure. make that differentiation there. Sure. We're getting even more <laughs> sort of tendentious, I think. So, so look, good old fashioned AI. So, you know, originally we thought, well, that intelligence is about cognition, about thinking, about reason. Uh, and reasons about logic, for example. And so what we should try to do is, is to figure out the laws of thought, the, the rules of logic, and then, and then we'll just have the machine do that somehow. Okay, so how does that work? Well, um, so a good example is chess, I think. So before we solved chess with computers, everyone thought that if you could have a computer that would beat you at chess, well, I mean, you know the old joke, right? The, 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 uh, um, uh, there's a there's a dog in a pub playing chess, and uh, the man said, yeah, "That's incredible! Your dog plays chess." The man said, "He's not that good. I beat him two times out of three, right?" Like, so like, <laughs> but like, the joke is that, of course, it actually, is quite clever to play chess. Dogs don't play chess, right? Yeah. Okay, so so we you know we attack this problem, and the the thing is, it turned out. It turned out that we. So how how do you how do you get a computer to play chess? So what we didn't do is we look we didn't think well I mean we obviously did think about how people play chess but it turns out the way we solved problem with computers was not how people do it. I'm not, I don't even know that we know how people solve these problems. But um, but the computer approach was was sort of was um, was actually conceptually extremely simple, right? So the problem with chess is like the simulation. You you can you you know everything about the part of the world that matters, right? You, you yeah. can capture in a computer easily if you're a programmer the positions of all the pieces on the board, right? That's not a problem. So but in this case, instead of knowing the laws of physics, you you know the, law, the rules, you know the of, rules the game. of chess exactly, yeah. exactly. But unlike simulation, the problem is there's no there's no rule that tells us from here necessarily the next state is here, like in you know. With a, with a rocket going to going to Mars, there's a rule that says if the rocket is here going this fast, then a second from now it'll be over there going that fast. Okay, but there isn't a rule with chess, and the reason there isn't a rule with chess is you have an opponent, and the opponent has options. Yeah. And we don't know how to simulate your opponent. Right. Okay. But we do know the rules. That I mean, that's a lot of information, which means we know not what will happen, but we know everything that could happen. Yeah. So, so your opponent only has a finite number of options open to them, and you can enumerate them all. So, in principle, chess is really easy. You, 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 you represent your the starting position in the computer. Then you represent every possible legal opening move. You know, there's like I don't know twenty. I don't know how many there are. And then for each one of those, you enumerate every possible legal reply. So I don't know. There's, well, there's 20 of those. So now we're up to sort of 400 possibilities. And then for every one of those, you enumerate every possible legal reply, and you just keep going. And eventually, every one, so it's like an enormous tree. So you start with a single board, and then you get 20 boards, and then each of those, you know, um, ramify into 20 boards and so on. It's like a big tree. And at the branches of those tree are the ends of games, games that are either a win for white, a win for black, or a draw. And those are all of the possible games and that is possible to have. Right. This is all, by, by the way, in principle. So yeah. you don't do that, but you could, in principle, that's what you do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then, 
you, you ask yourself, uh, you, you just sort of start at the end now, and you work, and you and you you know which of those are wins or losses or draws, and then you work back. So if if from any position, I know that you, Christina, have a move which is a win for you, I know this position is already lost for me. If I give you the board and there's one move that you could make that would be a checkmate for you, yeah. I've already lost. So that I know that's a, a, a loss. And now and now if we go one step back, yeah. now it's your move because. Uh, sorry, and supposing that every move open to me is has the characteristic that after that there's a winning move for you, well, then you know that from the previous position that is a win for you because everything that there's if you make this move, then everything that's available to me is a, is a loss for me, which means you win. So you yeah. just propagate these wins, losses, and draws all the way back to the beginning, and then you choose a move that guarantees a win. Okay. So, so people figured that out, and um, following that principle, created a chess algorithm that could beat humans as no. early as the 1990s. Yeah, not quite, because the problem <laughs> is you can't do that in practice. Oh, because it's just it's There's just too many. Too many yeah. Right, right. There'll probably be I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the complexity of of chess is, or, or like how big a number that we're talking about. Well, so what? Games. How there's a rule that says but it'll be far more than any yeah. So let's suppose there's ten moves, research. ten positions each move. There's more than that. Let's suppose it's ten. Yeah. It makes it easy. Uh, what's the rule if you if the game goes more than something something? It's a draw. Is it thirty moves or something? Suppose it's thirty moves. I don't know what it is. Okay, but that means there's ten to the thirty. I apologise for any chess player. This yeah, you just tell But the principle is right. There's, that's ten to the thirty possibilities by the end, right. which is a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's a big number. So we cheat. So, so first of all, we we um, we we there's the, not a cheat, but a but a, a clever idea is that if I um, if I'm in a position and I enumerate all your options, and one of them is checkmate for you. I know right away, I don't even have to explore the other ones all the way down, because you're going to choose that one. So I don't even bother. Yeah. So I prune the tree. Right. So that's one easy way. But even that's not good enough for chess. North of Crosses is probably good enough, but chess is not good enough. So then I, we think, oh, what are we going to do? So what we do is we say, well, not, you know, uh, we, we the computer algorithm. We, we the person writing the computer algorithm. Okay. Right? We, we, we say... <laughs> Big distinction. Yeah, we say, look, okay, we can't follow these all the way to the end. So what we'll do is we'll go out as far as we can in the time we have available. And by the way, by the end, Deep Blue was evaluating something like 10 million board positions per second. I mean, that's, that's insane, right? Mm. That's absolutely... Imagine... And, and, it, and it only just one. I mean, imagine... What is it that humans are doing that you can, you know, force a draw on a machine that can evaluate 10 million board positions a second? Yeah. I don't know what yeah. that person is doing, but not doing that. Okay. So you go as far as you can in time available, and, and you won't be at the end. It's not an end game. So you don't know if this position you've got to is, is a win or a loss or a draw for you in the end. Uh -huh. So you guess. You invent a, a rule that tries to assess somehow how good this position is for you, yeah. a heuristic. So heuristic because it's a guess, not, it's, not a, it's not guaranteed. So for example, over the years, chess players have, they assign um, 
uh, values to each piece. You know, a pawn is one, mm -hmm. a knight is four, and a rook is three. I don't know what the numbers are, but they're something like this. So you could just add up the numbers, the values of all your pieces, and subtract the values of all your opponent's pieces, and that's a quick and dirty assessment of how good this position... I mean, certainly it takes into account material, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's other clever things you can do. You could talk to, you know, grandmasters, and they say, ah, oh, well... It's important to control the center square, so maybe you can have half a point yeah, there, yeah. or blah 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 blah. Then you run the use exactly the same rules. You go out as far as you can, then you use the heuristic to evaluate the position and mm -hmm. then propagate that back. Prune the trees. Uh, you, yeah. you prune the trees with the thing we talked about before, yeah. and in addition, you you assess a position not by a guaranteed win or a loss, but I by see, this yeah. heuristic. So of the pruned trees, you're then deciding which one to, which move to make next. Yeah, because it, it sort of it. looks good to you. Yeah. Because as far as you can tell, ten moves ahead or five moves ahead or whatever, yeah. it looks pretty good on material. Okay, so that's what we did. Uh, plus, in Deep Blue's case, we also programmed in an enormous library of potential opening. I mean, the, the reason I don't play chess is I, as, well, as a kid, I was trying to learn chess. Oh, this is lots of fun. I'll learn chess. And then I went to the library to get a book on chess. Yeah. And there was a book in the library called something like The Queen's Gambit Declined. And I figured if you need an entire book to talk about a reply to an opening, I don't want to know anymore, right? But all of that stuff is, yeah, in, right. the, is, in, is in the chess computer. Plus, the end game is also basically solved right. like you know with only a few pieces left you can pre-compute who's going to win by just playing out all the games and is there a way to connect those two not ends? through the mid game right. no the mid game is the tricky one but you know the opening gets you a long way and then the mid game you play with this method we've talked about right. and then when you get to the end you know what you're doing so in a way is similar to the simulations is yeah. a symbolic ai chess engine just a summation of human knowledge that an individual human is going to find very difficult to like both know and realize in their chess playing ability whereas a computer program can at least have all of its different writers of its software um you know and it will remember all of those heuristics and yeah so they strategies. get better through two ways yeah one is you, you the, the the person invents better heuristics and the second way is the machine gets faster and so they can explore deeper down the down the tree, yeah. down the game tree, which is which is where its main advantage lies. Yeah, and they can think of, it can explore a bit further down the tree than a human can yeah. think number of moves ahead, right. perhaps. Right. Okay. That's right. So, so hey, that that's an interesting distinction then, because it again, it still it seems to me like yeah. we've got a distinction here between um, both the on one hand the symbolic AI chess programs and the simulations and on the other hand machine learning because you're thinking but like where's the cleverness in the machine the cle <laughs> like what did you have to know about the problem to even get it going with symbolic ai well you have to know how to represent lots. the world <laughs> lots right yeah how to represent the world and how to represent and you had to know the rules that govern the possible ways the world could be even if you didn't know which one it would be so that you know we actually have uh, computer programs that help mathematicians prove theorems in maths, which is also kind of amazing, right? That's, that's clever. Maths is hard. Um, and what do they do? Well, 
the rules of logic are mechanical. The rules of logic say they, they give you a, a set of ways of writing down logical statements and a set of rules that say if, you're, if you've written down these statements, then you may conclude this statement or that one or that one, but not these other ones. Right. And so then effectively, I mean, it, it's you know, like chess playing, it's more than this, but effectively you just search all the possibilities. And so in the end, you, you've constructed a logical proof, and that looks really clever, but you've, what you've done is you've searched through a... And what's, so what's clever about it is there were too many possibilities to really search, and so some human cleverness went in in telling the machine, you know, which ways look promising. I see. So, so as a human coming up with those mathematical proofs, you're, in a certain sense relying on good fortune for coming across it, but also maybe many decades or hundreds of years of getting there and building on the... Yeah, there were lots of heuristics. I think my sense is these theorem-proving programs. In fact, um, you know, in in the field of... you know, So so programming is maths, really, just to be even more tendentious. And (laughs) And so writing a computer program is, it turns out, very much like... Um, uh, proving a theorem, and so there are there are software that help you write correct computer programs, yeah. um, and they work in very much the same way as theorem proving because it turns out to be effectively the same thing, which is a topic for another day. And they and they involve tactics, I, which I think which I understand. I could be wrong here. This is definitely going way out of my field. Are basically heuristics for what kind of proof techniques to try next. Um, but in the end, it's it's. Uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, so you so you have to know a lot before you can even get going on the problem with this AI, and and we but we got a long way. Like we did chess, we did yep. North Crosses early, then we did chess. Okay. We had programs that would uh, um, stack blocks, and they'd answer questions about why certain blocks were stacked in certain ways. There's lots of other parts of good old fashioned AI that I'm not even talking about, that I, like knowledge representation. But in the end. In the end, we couldn't solve the problems that we thought were really easy. Like, here's a number, and I'll write it on the on the whiteboard. What number is that? Just recognise that number. Mm-hmm. And it turned out those are really hard. And you mentioned the people at possibly MIT or somewhere who, in the 1960s, wanted to work on computer vision. Yeah, I thought they'd be done by. Thought, oh, yeah. this will be. That'd be a simple easy. We thought that'd be easy. Yeah. Well, recognising like what what are the words that I am saying? Not not even what do these words mean. But what are the words that I'm saying? That speech recognition yeah. turned out to be super hard. Um, yeah, here's a photo of, a, of, a, of an animal. What animal is it? That turned out to be really hard. And, and the, reason, the reason that we got stuck was that, that we... So there were two reasons. Well, so one reason is, of course, you have to know the rules to do symbolic AI. But what are the rules of what's a number seven? Yes, yeah. I don't know. It's like two lines at an angle, except one's horizontal. But of course, in the real world, well, first of all, I don't know what the rules are, so I've got to make that up. But secondly, in the real world, number sevens, they, if, if I write on a precise rule about a number seven, real sevens are never like that. You know, it's like the line's a bit tilted, or the, there's a slash through the middle, or one of the lines broke because the pen came off the paper. But it doesn't matter. You see it's a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're... Your AI is trying to determine the difference between a seven and a one. It might be a lot more easy to for you to understand that right. than for the machine. But then you can't even write down. How do you even articulate what rules are? Articulate yeah. what 
you, your own understanding of what is a one and what is a seven precisely is so you, um, if you don't know how to say what the rule is how to recognize the answer you can't even get started on i mean there are other reasons that the symbolic ai program sort of uh got stuck and one is that if you ever talk about real world examples the problem is that actually there is so much knowledge about the world and almost none of it is relevant to any particular problem like if i ask you know why are you wearing a t-shirt and not a jumper uh well i mean the room is white you know there's three of us in the room we live in london it's gray outside it's 25 degrees the pressure is about 1.2 i mean like like there are so many facts about the world that Doing the rule base, let's just explore all the possibilities. I, I just get, I get stuck. There's too many. It's like, it's like Go. So we couldn't solve Go, the game of Go, even though we could solve chess. So the game of Go is very much like chess. It's a two-player, perfect information, um, zero-sum, alternating player game. Mm-hmm. I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn, you take a turn. But Go is played on a... 19 by 19 grid? Or is that 28 by... I don't know, it's big. Yeah. It's a big grid. And so the branching factor, the number of possibilities at each stage is way bigger than chess. And so it turns out we had no hope with Go. Also, we couldn't write down the heuristics. So, so we just couldn't do that. And we couldn't do real-world situations because there was just too much that could be relevant. And, and, so, and so the computer had to search everything. And it turns out, you know, that takes the age of the universe to search, and we can't do it. Okay. So in machine learning, um, we, we pulled a clever trick, which is we said, um, let's, let's do the following. So let me, so what, what is it? So I'm trying to recognize a number, like, the num- like a handwritten digit. Like mm-hmm. the handwritten seven. Okay. So first of all, I, I need to capture the question in a way the computer can get a hold of it. So what I do is, is I, I take your handwritten digit and I take a picture of it and I digitize it into a grid of pixels, which are either you know white or gray. Okay. So at least that gets it. And maybe I scale it to fill the grid and and you know make sure it's just I just that's my. That's what I'm asking you to do. So is this grid of pixels, and I'm asking you to recognize is what digit is that? Okay. Supposing I had some way to tell you whether one grid of pixels, one, and I'm, I'm deliberately not using the word image because I just want to make it as um, almost abstract as possible. Whereas one one set of numbers, you know, representing a a, a 28 by 28 grid of pixels is similar to another. Yeah. Supposing I had some way to compute a similarity between the two. And then in this example, those set of pixels are referring to the images of of the handwritten digits. Yeah. Um, which we're trying to recognize. distinguish yeah. and recognize. Exactly. Yeah. So, so maybe more like the shade of the pixel, for example. So if it's dark or white. Yeah, yeah. so here's, here's what you could do. You could, I don't think they do this, but you could, you could sort of overlap the images, yeah. subtract the numbers at every pixel, 
take the absolute value and add all those up. And that would so, be like a good heuristic of number seven. Yeah, it's like it's like well, no, it's it's a it's a it's a guess at a way of saying whether two images are similar. Mm. It's not a very good one um, because actually, you know, if I if I rotate one of my sevens a little bit, that's yeah. still a seven. Yeah. And whereas if you overlay them and subtract the pixels, but with a little bit of thought, you can come up with. Uh, a reasonable way of saying whether one image is a, is like another image or very different. Yeah. So if you overlay a seven and a zero, and just look at where the pixels don't match, that's a pretty they're, they're pretty different, right? Yeah. So that's step one. Come okay. up with a similarity. Come measure. up with a similarity measure. Now, I'm, examples. I'm, 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 I, I will admit that I'm massively oversimplifying what's actually going to happen in the end. But look, just bear with me for a second, because I think. <laughs> I think this is this is a good enough way of thinking about how it works that it answers it'll let you correctly answer most questions about will it work uh, without understanding the full detail. Okay. Now suppose as well as that I'm going to give you a lot of solved examples. So I'm going to give you in this case 10 60,000 60,000 little images with the pixels, all of handwritten, lots and lots of different handwritten digits captured from all people, every single one of which I'm going, also going to tell you which digit it is. I'm going to get a person to say, oh, that's a three. Three. Okay. So now, here's how, here's what you could do. You could, I give you a new pixel representation. You take it and you just say, is it like that one? 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 And you find all of the examples that I've given you already, yeah. which I kind of like this one in the, sim in the simple way that I've described. Not are they like a seven, but just as pure black and white pixelated images. Sure. Are they similar? Then you look at all those examples that you found that are similar and you're like, oh, look, they're all sevens. Or... 90% of them are sevens, 5% yeah. are ones, and I don't know what the other 5% are. So what are you going to get? Probably a seven. Yeah. That's machine learning. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. So in practice, that's not what we do. But in principle, I think that's, that's a good enough model that mm. lets you answer questions about what do you need to say that machine learning can work. Right? You're going to need, one, a way of saying somehow if two things are similar. And it turned out with images, right? it turns out that convolutional neural networks, which work a bit like the retina, actually, it turns out they're actually quite good at image similarities, rotations, and, and you know, well, it's actually over there, but I mean, it's, you know. So they don't simulate those differences. They work on this kind of encapsulated understanding of the relationship from this training data set, those images that have the, the label of the number with? Or do they do that kind of simulation based, oh, if we turn it around slightly like this, if we zoom in a bit more, if we zoom out a bit more? Yeah, they don't, they don't do that. Yeah. They don't do that. So I'll come back to what they do in a second. But anyway, so in principle, you need a way of saying, and it doesn't have to be great, because the other thing you need is a lot of solved examples. And with enough solved examples, you can get away with an unintelligent version of similarity, right? Um, 
so for, and for images, it turned out that we invented a way of thinking what similar was, which is not the same as we use for speech and not quite the same as we use for other things, but it worked quite well. And, it, what, and, and in addition, given this large example set, you know, you, you can, you're doing quite well. So you need quite a lot to make machine learning work. Okay. So, so sometimes are clearly false because you clearly don't have those things. So, so to bring this full circle then, I think what, what you're getting at here is that the amount of work needed to make machine learning seem intelligent is almost comparable to the amount of work needed to make other forms of AI seem intelligent. And therefore, it's a different toolbox, a different suite of... Uh, yeah. And, uh, and there are a different set of problems to which it is applicable. But to say that one is AI and one isn't wouldn't be totally fair. So I think that's right. We should either say neither, none of them are or all of them are. Yeah, I think it's clear that all of them are. <laughs> none of them are artificially general intelligent. Yes. They're all AI. And yeah, I think they're limited in their ways. So, um, so, I don't know, you could ask me, what have I been not telling you about machine learning? Because there's quite a bit I've not told you. Of course, yeah. Uh, you could also ask, and then there's also, um, you know, of course, you know, people aren't crazy. And the next thing is, well, okay, can we squish these kinds together? Can we do a bit of everything? And it turns out people do do that, and that works really well in certain cases. Yeah. Um, and you can also say, like, what's missing? But anyway, the, the, uh, it yeah. turns out I have time now because my... Um, my wife is in fact going to pick up my son. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, uh, on that note, uh, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and uh, talking about the, you know, the problem of AI. Oh, I think we got to a really pretty good resolution there. In uh, yeah, everything's AI or nothing's AI. Confusing. <laughs> that's, that's and it's well. not all incredibly intelligent, but intelligent enough. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really clever, right? I don't want to downplay yeah, yeah. stuff like. One thing I would say is if there is ever an quote-unquote AGI, artificial general intelligence, then we certainly won't call any of this stuff AI. But that would certainly change our conceptualization. But until such a time, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna fall down on your side of the fence and say it's all AI. Good <laughs> um, yeah. All right, James. Thanks again for coming on. Great the podcast. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we let you go. Um, where can people find out more about uh, your research online and things that you're working on? Oh, uh, so there's a little bit about NoCell on the, on the Turing Institute's website. Just search for NoCell. Um, uh, not a lot. Um, and the thing about... The thing about what not, doing, I know that you're not a social media person, so I, I, won't so ask you, I will not ask you if you're a Twitter account. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing. Um... And uh, the biggest thing that I'm worried about right now is what what does uh, the research engineering group look like over the next few years to support what the Turing will look like over the next few years, which is also not online. <laughs> but that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> all right, brilliant. Okay, thanks again for coming on the podcast, James. Not at all. Thank you very much. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk.
The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstrey, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.